Thank you. Deception. Or as I've subtitled what we're going to be looking at this morning, one day in the life of a dysfunctional family. Some of you think that you come from a dysfunctional family. It probably has nothing on, on this. The family of Isaac and Rebecca, Esau and Jacob. We're going to be splitting what I say into three shortish sections today and just a quick route map of where we're going. Firstly, introduction, brothers. Secondly, everyone a failure. And then thirdly, failure isn't final. So, brothers, there's a paragraph in the, in the Bible which starts off, there was a man who had two sons. Now those two sons weren't Esau and Jacob. It was one of Christ's well-known parables, the parable that we know as the prodigal son. But actually, there are quite a few parallels between the parable of the prodigal son and the passage that we've had read to us this morning. In both instances, there are two brothers who are at loggerheads with each other. Each had different priorities, different gifts, different ambitions for their lives. Both younger sons leave home, settle in a foreign country, where both enjoy mixed fortunes and eventually decide that home is best after all. Both older sons get on with the work of running the family farm. Yes, we know that Esau was a huntsman, but he wasn't just a huntsman, because later when Esau and Jacob meet up again, Esau says to Jacob, I don't need your flocks, I've got plenty of my own. Both families have deep, bitter internal tensions, internal jealousies. But there is an important distinction between the passage that we've looked at this morning and the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus' parable might better be called not the prodigal son, but the loving father. Because it's not really about the prodigal son at all. Its purpose is to teach us about the love, the forgiveness, the grace of the father in responding to each of his sons. Pointing us to the love and forgiveness and grace of God, the heavenly father. This story is also the story of a father, of course. It's the story of Isaac. Isaac doesn't come out very well. Isaac knew God's promise given years earlier to Rebekah when she was pregnant. The Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Isaac knew this promise, but as years had gone by, He'd been assimilated into the culture of the surrounding peoples. For the younger son to inherit the family name, 
the blessing. It was completely countercultural. Isaac wasn't going to do things God's way when he thought he knew better. How often do we know God's purposes and values in our own lives and yet we hold on to reservations when obedience would mean setting us apart from the world's value? Maybe in terms of our lifestyle choices, our relationship choices, our ambitions and hopes for our own future or that of the family. We are so easily assimilated into the culture that we live in. In Britain today, we don't have any tradition of inheriting a father's blessing or being appointed as head of a family. Parents rarely see themselves as role models or spiritual leaders. And children don't necessarily respect their parents' wisdom or experience. So for us, Isaac's blessing can be hard to understand. Yet from this race to impress their elderly father, even at the cost of deception and lies, we get an idea of just how important this blessing was. Jacob really wants to receive this blessing. But Esau does not. Esau's already given mixed messages about the importance of his family. In Genesis 25:34, we read that Esau despised his birthright. And then in the beginning of that passage this morning, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau married Hittite women, believers in pagan gods. His parents had wanted him to marry a woman who worshipped the living God. And that telling phrase, they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Christians, of course, are warned in the New Testament not to marry unbelievers. And here we see the grief it caused to Esau's parents. Rebecca, meanwhile, sorry, I've gone too far there, I think. Rebecca, meanwhile, seems to be pulling the apron strings. This once beautiful, generous woman disappoints us by setting a snare for her now blind husband. What do we make of her motives? Did God need her helping hand? The whole narrative suggests human weakness even if ultimately it manages to achieve God's divine purpose. The story is incredibly human. Two very different sons, one having the birthright and selling it, married unwisely. He was an unlikely candidate for carrying on the family legacy. But what about the other one? A liar and deceiver. Add to this a father who'd forgotten or deliberately ignored the prophecy that his older son would serve the younger. And a mother who decides to take the will of God into her own hands. The results are lies, deception, 
and bizarrely blessing. Somehow, through all this mess, through the mess that we can make of our own human situations and relationships, God can still bring about his purposes. So we'll look at it in just a minute. Thank you. Everyone a failure. What a dysfunctional family. Manipulative, deceitful, plotting against one another. What a family they are. Yet, it's hard to see beyond the deceit, the ambition and self-centeredness. Perhaps we should look more closely because God is at work here. God's focus is different from ours. God works out his plan of salvation for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Here we have four flawed characters, yet each key in God's purpose of working out a plan of salvation through the nation of Israel, which would be Jacob's new name, and ultimately in the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaac, he's now a solitary figure, old, blind, and seemingly gullible, at odds with his wife Rebecca. How different things had once been. As a boy, you remember, Isaac had carried the wood up Mount Moriah, where his father Abraham had laid him on the altar as a sacrifice. As a younger man, he'd been a man of prayer. We read that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. Now his focus is on what he would most like to eat. It wasn't only Rebecca who'd received a clear promise from God regarding their sons. Isaac also had received a promise. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. All nations on earth will be blessed. Despite knowing that God had chosen Jacob, Isaac is still prepared to bless the son he believes to be Esau in an apparent attempt to overturn God's plan. He thought he knew better. Although clearly suspicious that something wasn't right, Isaac allows himself to be deceived through his senses, hearing, touch, smell, taste. We can see a parallel with Esau's attitude earlier when he said, Look, I'm famished. What good is the birthright to me? Let me have some of that stew. Both father and son allow their appetite to food, for food to sway their judgment. I wonder who it was that first said, 
that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Perhaps it was Rebecca. Ultimately, God's blessing was fulfilled, not because of Isaac's words, but because of God's sovereign plan. Rebecca, perhaps she should take responsibility. She directed Jacob in the deceit. Despite his reservations, she invited the risk of curse to fall upon herself if things should go badly. Whilst pregnant, Rebecca had been expressly told that the older son would serve the younger. So perhaps she believed that she was doing what God really wanted. Even so, it's hard to believe how that beautiful young woman who'd left Mesopotamia to marry Isaac could have turned into this scheming, unprincipled, manipulative woman we read in this incident. She'd become totally dedicated to her own ends, even to the point of feeling that she could deceive her own husband and blatantly manipulate her sons. Setting father against son and brother against brother didn't seem to worry her at all. In Rebecca's book, the end justified the means. Rebecca's scheming made her blind to the consequences of her action. Again, God's blessing was fulfilled because of God's sovereign plan. God didn't bless the ruse that Rebecca cooked up. Rebecca and Jacob were both to suffer the consequences, but God used it in his plans. What about Jacob? His only reservation seemed to be fear of being found out. Is that all that holds us back when tempted? Fear of being found out. The deception was planned by his mother, but Jacob was the willing accomplice. He had several opportunities to come clean, but he dug himself further and further into the lie. So we read, verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. One lie leads to another. And how terrible it was to add blasphemy to lying. The Lord your God gave me success, Jacob said. Martin Luther, in his commentary, said, he wondered how Jacob was able to brazen this out. He said, I would have run away in terror and probably dropped the plate. But then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. When we abandon the question of 
truth and falsehood, right and wrong, when our only concern is what's going to get the outcome that we desire, then we devalue our Christian testimony in the world. Jacob lied. He took God's name in vain. But is he really so very different from any one of us? Esau. We might feel perhaps rather sorry for this pathetic older twin. He'd previously bartered away his birthright in exchange just for a bowl of stew. And now he returns from hunting to find himself tricked once again. He tearfully pleads with Isaac to change his mind. Give his blessing. And yet he showed no real repentance for his earlier disregard for the birthright. He experienced remorse, but not repentance. He was sorry for what he'd lost, not sorry for what he'd done. Esau's tears couldn't change Isaac's mind or alter the blessing. And when his tears and pleading failed, we read that he nursed a grudge. He nursed a grudge against Jacob. He planned to wait for his father's death and then to murder his brother. I'm sure that many brothers and sisters have shouted to their siblings, I'm going to kill you. But I hope that not very many of them really meant it quite to the same extent that Esau did of Jacob. How often can we be like Esau, nursing a grudge? Harboring resentment. We might bite our tongues, but nevertheless, in our hearts, we believe we're in the right. We've got nothing to apologize for. When we mess up, is our response one of remorse or of genuine repentance? Are we sorry for what we've lost? Sorry for being found out? Rather than sorry for what we've done. Four biblical characters, each one in their own way a failure. Sometimes that might seem to be our experience too. What a failure I've been. But that's not the end of the story. So we'll come back in just a few minutes. Thank you. So, failure isn't final. It's all too easy to mess up or say things that can't later be undone but which leave a legacy of hurt, mistrust, alienation. Could God ever forgive me? Could God ever love me? Could God ever use me after what I've done? After I acted so badly, so thoughtlessly, so untruthfully. Isaac. When the Lord met Isaac in the burning bush. How does he make his identity known to Moses? He says, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of those pretty pathetic failures, Isaac and Jacob. But I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
More than 400 years after their deaths, God reveals himself to Moses as the God who didn't give up on Isaac and Jacob. Just as he was the same God for Moses, so he is for us today. Failure isn't final. Our God is a redeeming God. He redeems our deceits, our failures, our broken relationships. And what about Jacob? Your name will no longer be Jacob, we read in a a few more chapters' time. But Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Struggled with God and have overcome. Jacob, whose name meant the deceiver, was to be known afterwards as Israel, prince of God. Jacob, who would flee for his life to a foreign country, where he went through years of struggle and was himself the victim of deception. The deceiver was deceived, yet through it all, God's hand was on his life. Failure is not final. You may have struggled with God, but he still wants to have his touch on your life. What about Esau? The tension between Jacob and Esau would have long-term consequences. Yet, in the New Testament, we read in Hebrews, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Jacob and Esau. Not blessed Jacob and cursed Esau, but blessed both sons. Esau would himself be the father of a nation. His descendants would have a land of their own, the land of Edom. Failure isn't final. God has a plan for your life, even though it may seem to take a different direction to your own expectation. Failure is not final. And then there's Rebecca. Two parents who each had their favorite. And Rebecca, that beautiful, godly woman who'd come in trust to an arranged marriage and found love, now this manipulative, scheming old woman. Poor Rebecca. Her scheming gained Isaac's blessing for her son, but at a pretty terrible price. The consequence was that Jacob had to flee for his life and Rebecca would never see him again. She died before it was safe for Jacob to return to Canaan. No doubt she remembered God's promise that the older twin would serve the younger, but she didn't trust God to work it out without her help. Do we trust God? Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Don't be afraid. You're worth much more than many sparrows. We can trust God. Rebecca's deception wasn't necessary. God's purpose had been fulfilled through Rebecca's life. She was the mother of two nations, the nations of Israel 
and Edom. Failure isn't final. And what about us? Do we sometimes feel that we need to give God a helping hand, as Rebecca did? That he's unable to fulfill his purposes without us? God chooses to make himself vulnerable by entrusting his message of salvation to just ordinary people like you and me. But as Paul said of his ministry, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. So often Christians seem to have lost confidence in the power of the gospel. We need to make it sound nicer to modern ears. Deception should have no place in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our involvement in society, or in our commitment to sharing the gospel. Deception should have no place. We need to share Paul's confidence in the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. We've all made mistakes, all missed opportunities, all been guilty of deception to a greater or lesser degree. Years later, Jacob and Esau were reconciled. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him and they wept. Isaac and Rebekah, Esau and Jacob, everyone a failure. Me, you, everyone a failure. But failure is not final. God redeemed each and every one of these four characters just as he does for you and I. Failure isn't final.